0: All right, well, 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 welcome everybody to Peggy's Recovery Corner. Today we're gonna go live. We're going live right now. We're live. Uh first and foremost, I'm here with my with my homeboy Boo Garcia. Welcome to the corner, Boo Boo.
1: Yeah, what up, nephew, big Snoop Dog?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> What's up, Peji?
0: What's going on? So, uh today, first and foremost, I want to say I want to give a quick shout-out to my sister. Today's her birthday um uh, we're not going to talk about how old because you know she still be staying young like 20 something she's 20 something <laughs> and um, uh, I love you so much Sheila happy birthday to you and such an honor and a privilege to have my uh dear friend Boo on the podcast today we've been talking about doing this for a minute um Boo. uh so first you know the way this works is usually I would I love to hear about your background uh where you were born where you were raised kind of what it was like but you know, and then we'll get into like other stuff too. I'll ask some questions. But the, so first and foremost, where are you from? Where are you from?
1: From Compton. No, <laughs> <laughs>
0: where are you from? I'm from, from? I'm from, from oh. San
1: Pedro San Pedro, California.
0: And so where's San Pedro? Isn't that near Compton? Kind of?
1: It's a bridge that divides us in Long Beach.
0: Okay. And uh you were born what in in LA? Is that what where you were born? Yep, yep. Born and raised? Okay. And then uh what was it like growing up in San Pedro as a youngster?
1: Well, um I loved it, you know, I was very um uh, it seems like it's a small town and everything where everyone was pretty much connected. Everyone knew everybody from generations, you know, from certain families that were from Pedro. We all grew up generations with each other, so.
0: Okay, so when you say generations, I mean so, okay, San Pedro is an interesting city. Like, you have to, don't you have to drive over a bridge to get there? Like, it's kind of like its own little island. Yeah. So, like, yeah, over look. there, I've, I've been over to San Pedro and, like, there's some good neighborhoods, but there's some bad neighborhoods too, right?
1: Yep. Just like, like you anywhere got some, else.
0: You, you got some well to do people that live over on, on one side of town, and then you got, like, the hood, right?
1: Yep. The Collective ego calls it the ghetto by the sea. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And it's, it's my understanding that possibly like a lot of people that live over on that side in that area, uh, work in the, as longshoremen, like in the, in the boat yeah. docks, bringing in all the the cargo that comes from across the world. Yep. Okay. My
1: grandfather is a retired longshoreman, all my family, sister, uncles, you know, et cetera, et cetera, cousins.
0: Okay. Um, so as a youngster growing up, like, what was it like growing up in your particular neighborhood? I mean, were you seeing, how was it?
1: Um, I think I was on survival mode from the very beginning, to be honest. You know, I came from a family that, you know, lived paycheck by paycheck, you know, welfare, you know, food stamps, um, kind of a bad neighborhood. Um, and, but that became the norm for me you know, um, survival mode and um, and just the, the gangster world. You know, my father was a gang member and my mother was as well. They called my dad Sad Sack and they called my mom Little Loca. So my dad was a bag of, a big sack of sadness and my mom was cr- a little crazy.
0: <laughs> how so? Crazy, <laughs> well, how so? My mom... I should walk me to
1: school and next, you know, she's fist biting on somebody. My mom was sliced in the back over 50 times and they didn't stab her because she was pregnant. Um, My dad was shot five times in two different occasions. He was stabbed in the face um, pretty much from the below his eye to his, the bottom of his, uh, um, you know, by his chin. So he did look like Scarface, you know.
0: So, I mean, as a youngster, you're seeing this stuff. These are the people that are, these are your parents, right? So yeah. you're just taking it all in and it becomes your you're condition to thinking like you gotta you got to follow in their footsteps, correct?
1: Yeah, it's it's normal. It's, it becomes a normal way of living.
0: There's, is there I, no way around it?
1: You know, my little mind had no chance. It, it was molded a certain way through my environment. And for me, later as I go through the 12 steps and have a spiritual awakening, I I, I realize an awakening is um, thinking broader than your environment, you know. So what what I'm saying is what drives the road will no longer drive you. You know, I'm not driven by my environment anymore. I can think for myself and utilize that intuition.
0: Okay, so uh, was there drug use, alcohol use in front of you at a very, very young age? Yes,
1: um, I would... Open the door and watch everyone party in my hallway door. And we we lived in a, a um, one and a half bedroom uh, apartment. You know, with two two of my sisters, and uh, I would look at everyone partying. You know, I, I would I would hear that song White Lines playing you know, from the eighties, mm-hmm. really loud. And and White and I, I, I seen, yep, and I seen everybody partying, and I thought that was life. You right. know, I remember certain men will walk in the room, into the house, and the, the energy will change. And I remember whatever they have, I want. They had some respect from people, you know, and uh you know, I will go use the restroom and wake up in the middle of the night and there's my family portrait on the um laying laying on the countertop with some white lines on it, you know. So I seen a lot of coke. I seen a lot of um I seen my dad um OD a few times. Um
0: O D on what, like heroin?
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, when the ambulance came.
0: Does that mean know, obviously um, they were shooting it, right? Yeah, yeah. And did you did you actually my, literally my, did you my ever dad see your parents sticking a needle in their arms?
1: I, I never really did, but I he had a peacock on his hand where they would hide the, you know, the markings. Uh-huh. So um, yeah, my dad was a heroin addict. My mom eventually got into crystal meth, you know. Yeah. Became a tweaker.
0: Right, right, and yeah, I remember those times. That was probably like what the the eighties. Yeah, eighties. Yep. And what
1: what I would do is I would wake up, you know, and I would play with the beer cans, the beer bottles. Play mm-hmm. with the little toy, which I call it. Which I find out find out it's a roach clip, you know, right? You know, little clip with the little joint on piece of the joint. Oh on yeah, with, oh yeah. Sometimes it had a feather. Yeah, with a feather. With, the, the yeah, yeah. with, the feather. with
0: so, a feather.
1: Yeah. So yeah. that'd be a little toy for me, you know. it's you know. So,
0: okay. So obviously you lived in a neighborhood. Uh, how young were you? Were you? I mean, obviously, probably at a very young age, you were hanging out with the kids in the streets, right? Hmm. And so you acclimated to the street life almost immediately. I mean, there's no way around it.
1: Yeah. Well, I seen it. I was, I, I was taught it. Um, my dad would tell people I'm going to be the hardest gangbanger when I get older. And, you know, so that was pounded in my subconscious, you know? So.
0: Right. So, so at what point were you, I mean, did you have to go through the traditional getting jumped in, like getting beat down by a group of the guys, to make sure that you're like part of the hood, part of the yeah. part of the gang?
1: Like I always talk in my talks, you know, I put a friend request in the neighborhood and it wasn't on Facebook.
0: <laughs> this is way before from, a friend request. A, you get, you get surrounded by request. ten
1: guys and they jump you. Yeah. They beat the crap out of you. Do you so,
0: remember that day? hmm
1: I was with my friend Johnny who passed away. He later died from addiction and alcoholism. And he yeah. um but we got jumped in together. How old were you? Um I was probably fourteen, thirteen, fourteen.
0: Okay, so like before that, yeah. were you before that were you actively going to school? Were you learning? Were you were you screwing up in school at a very 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 young age before like uh, you know joining the gang?
1: To be honest, uh, let me see. I stopped doing schoolwork in elementary pretty much. Once I hit junior high school, um, I stopped doing work. I, I mean, I only went just to get people to ditch school. Um, see what's going on, you know, um and, and stuff like that. Gather up a party, a ditching party and
0: Oh, like and a was, like a kickback. Like, it was a fun and games back.
1: for me. I didn't take school serious. And um a lot of people try to help me. Um because I was a really good athlete. You know, Bill Wilson says something in the letters with Father Ed Dowling, and he says, I always felt the least of God's creatures in my perver- in my perverse heart. So I had to be the per- um first at everything. And and that was my um my experience because, um, you know, I had to portray this superior that I'm better than, and, and uh, because deep down inside, I felt inferior. So I had to be the best at everything. You tell me to play basketball, you're going to pick me first. You tell me to play baseball, I'm going to hit a home run with a broken leg. You tell me to play football, I'll be the star quarterback or receiver. But I had to be the first at everything. Or if you tell me to fight somebody, then I'm going to come out the winner. Even if the kid's bigger than me, then I'll pull something out. because I needed you to want to love me because I felt not lovable. I Mm -hmm. I felt like something was missing, you know, and it's that traumatized persona that I was already developing from an early childhood.
0: Mm -hmm. And uh, when, when people would like, let's say you were in a gang and you'd see the oppositional gang, tell the truth. Please just tell me like when you would see like some people coming up on you, was there ever any fear in you or was it just straight up like I'm down for my hood, I'm down for my shit, I'm going to go fuck these dudes up like I'm I'm not afraid or was the fear ever there?
1: Of course there's fear. At least for me there was. You know, because I'm hiding behind a persona now, right? And I got to do things I don't want to do. I'm afraid, but I need to do it because I don't want you to think I'm a chump, I'm a coward, I'm a loser, and I can't show you how I really feel inside.
0: Right, you know, I and mean, if so you're angry. if you're perceived as a chump amongst your homies, then then they're gonna be like, "What the fuck right? They're gonna get on your case,
1: Tupac wrote a song called "Bomb First, so I developed a habit, and this is even before Tupac started really getting even into that song that uh, I had a bomb first, you know mm-hmm. there's no talking you gotta right. you gotta hit first,
0: right that's just the, that's just the way it is, yeah or you no or you might get hit and then you're going down right and there's no rules, yeah, yeah, so during that time, obviously, I mean, we're about, you're a few years younger than me, but we I remember that era. That era, there was a lot of gangster rap. Uh, we loved it. We listened to it. I still love listening to that. I mean, they told me when I first got sober that I got to change, like, the style of music that, I'm, that I listen to. I'm like, I ain't fucking going to stop listening to gangster rap. I love that shit. Like, I, I grew up on that. I know, I know. It glorifies the gang life. It glorifies using and drinking and all that. But obviously, during that time, getting alcohol and weed was just a way of life, right? Mm -hmm. Were you, were you doing that at a very young age? Like what, would you remember your first time that you actually drank or used?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, well, the first time I took a sip of alcohol, I spit it out and I couldn't comprehend how people can drink this stuff. It's nasty. Right. And that was around eight years old. But as I got into seventh, eighth grade summer, um, I was at a house party, and those little red cups, and they were pumping from that keg, filling them up. And I remember thinking, "There's that stuff my mom and dad drank that I tasted, and it was nasty." Mm
0: -hmm. But when
1: it came across my way, I grabbed it and I just guzzled it. And they gave me another one. I guzzled it um, because I didn't want to taste it, but I wanted to pound it because I wanted to be a part of. And I don't want you guys. Yeah, you didn't want to be
0: a chump. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you got to
1: fit in. But what I did, I did effect, experience effects produced by alcohol. That spiritus contra spiritum, you know, the spirit against spirits, as Carl Jung talked about, in that spiritual malady, which really is caused through trauma, um, uh, went away. Hmm. You know, um, it went away, and, and uh, I no longer, you know, I didn't get taller. I didn't pimples didn't fall off or nothing like that. That's other people's experience. But what happened for me was uh, I stopped really caring, and I stopped hating. You know my mother and father. Don't you know? As a matter of fact, I use their names for the in the streets. Don't you know who they are? You know,
0: because so. they were known on the streets. Here, Aaron has a question. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. <laughs> boo, boo. Did you know at the time you were hiding, or did that awareness come later?
1: That awareness came later because it was all unconscious in the very beginning.
0: Right. Right. Um. Uh, so, so within time, obviously, you know, you, like. I mean, how long were you out there doing what you were doing?
1: Um, it was a life way, way of living, you know. I don't right. know how long it was, but um,
0: well, okay, I think so until I hit like of- my
1: early thirties, that's when I started. I woke up, you know. I okay, so early thirties. Yeah,
0: yeah, And, and you, um, you obviously weren't really into education because you said in grade school you kind of just you were done then. So any kind of trade or I mean, did you learn? You I didn't do long term work, right?
1: No, I couldn't because um, I was always uh, never had a valid license or something was always cropping up where I couldn't get in. Mm-hmm. Um, early in the old days, they would you could unidenti- come in as an unidentified, but after a while, they started to change it and it was harder to get in. Um, but um, I became a carpenter and I started working, um, got done oh, like- what I did and started working for myself.
0: Oh, we know somebody else who's a carpenter that's a mistake jesus <laughs> why
1: well, I, I, I they say he was a carpenter, but I don't know the last year say something else.
0: so <laughs> well, we could get into that in just a little bit so here so this is I, before we jump ahead though I mean obviously uh, you became a carpenter like what in your thirties because before that you you witnessed some shit that like really sp- spun your wheels, right?
1: No, I've always done uh carpenter work from since I stopped going to high school, you know. Oh, just to, so to make ends meet and yeah, all that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so you were working at a young age, obviously, to try to be to make some money, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: But you were still gangbanging and everything. And what, what, what was the? I mean, didn't something happen one time, like something crazy?
1: A lot of things happened. A lot of crazy stuff. You know. Um, I mean, like I said, you know, I didn't know as a man think it in his mind. So was he. You know, and mm-hmm. you're hearing this gangster rap, Death Row Records, and they're talking about drive-bys yeah. and, and, and money hoes and, you know, all that other stuff. And we, we're living that stuff, you know, and we're, cause I'm feeding that into Tib- what's that scene? Uh, there's an evil wolf and a good wolf, the Native American scene. Yes. Inside all of us. And the one you feed the most is the one that gets bigger. And, and that evil wolf was really, you know, um, big. He goes swole, you know, and um, he was obese. And, and, and I kept feeding that negative stuff. And I kept living it.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what? What then? What then happened?
1: It just continued and continued and continued, and I started to have a little bit of uh, moments of clarity here and there. I remember one day I was um, walking out; a guy, was two guys were going to fight, and I went outside to make sure this guy doesn't get jumped. And um, I ended up fighting two guys, right, one after the other. And I walked back into the bar, and I see my buddy who left. Um, to the military when we were younger and I haven't seen him. He was in town visiting. He was like, Bobo, is that you? Because you're still doing that same stuff since we since we were younger. And I, I realized like, damn, like I haven't grown up, you know. Um, or my grandma like saying, you know, because the police are knocking down our door looking for me for a questioning. You know, out of all the, my grandchildren, you're the one that's going to kill me. You know, little stuff like that started to help me wake up. There was a little long,
0: sign, little sign. Along with losing
1: everything, you know, um, because Zach Hartoli says, in the beginning of all addiction is pain, and the end of all addiction is pain. And Bill Wilson says, um, you know, the common denominator of spiritual experience is pain and utter hopelessness. And I was in a lot of pain by the time I would get to Alcoholics Anonymous or, you know, the 12-step programs.
0: So today's topic is uh, trauma and the and the philosophies in in uh recovery. So uh, I want to get into that in a second, because obviously it sounds like there was a lot of trauma that was already happening for you at a very young age, you know, and people, some, some people label it as PTSD. Some people just call it a way of life and then you learn from it and you, and you, uh, you move on to, uh, to, to transforming and changing your, your mentality, your, your understanding of certain things. I, I too had some indicators, uh, a series of events that happened for me to where I realized, like, why am I living this lifestyle? Like, this is kind of aimless. Like, where am I going with all this? Right. <laughs> so, uh, I was wondering uh when during that time, like, you know, up until your thirties, was it just alcohol? Was it weed? Was there pills? Was there cocaine? Was there meth heroin? Were you not doing the type of drugs that your parents were doing?
1: You know, yeah, I didn't want to do heroin because my dad did heroin.
0: And you and I, didn't, I didn't want to do crystal that?
1: meth because my mom did crystal meth, you know. Yeah, I, I seen that eventually, you know, later as I got older, it was pretty clear, you know, but um but yeah, I, I drank and my drinking progressed from just beers to alcohol, hard liquor and then um of course weed was always involved in in, in Go smoking ahead. going through the smoking primo stage. Um and then and then um of of pills, you know. I think pills really helped me um, hit my bottom. To be honest,
0: were you a ghostwriter for any any uh, of these rap <laughs> groups that we know of? No. <laughs> <laughs> what earlier when I asked you, you started actually flowing. What were you <laughs> go for? It. Do it. No, I'm good. Dude, I'm come good. on, don't be shy. No trip. What no. I'm do good. it in private time. Pretend like there's <laughs> nobody here. Nobody's watching. Come on, do it. I got you on video. I'll put that shit on my Facebook. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so then, uh, you know, obviously something must have happened to, to put you on the path of recovery. But before that, did you did you uh, did something like you witnessed something crazy that happened? I remember you told you talk about this often. It was uh, in a car. Somebody that you were in a car with. You want to talk about that?
1: Um. Yeah. Um. Well, I share in my story a lot of how. You know, we meet these girls. Make a long story short. Um. Last call for alcohol after party. Go buy liquor after hours, at a liquor store, and um. We get our liquor, get in the cars, and these guys start saying stuff. They're playing that death row music, you know, the gangster rap, and uh. And I get out of the car. Well. I, I wanted to walk up to these dudes, but my buddy you know, grabbed my shoulder and says, let's get out of here. We don't got a strap. We don't. We got these females. We're in a different neighborhood. Let's get the hell out of here. You're right. We get in the cars. We take off. And uh, well, before that, the girl switched seats while my buddy's sitting shotgun. And he goes with the girls, and she comes with us. And we, we're at the red light, and these guys start throwing stuff. And I, I get out that car, and I walk towards these dudes, you know, because I, I don't know. I always have I was driven by anger, which is a form of fear, right? And I didn't know how to think about consequences or maybe I need a pause or call my sponsor. I didn't know how to you know, do any of that stuff because I was driven by fear. And I didn't know that at the time, but I, I just, I just know I'm going to walk up to the first guy and drop him. I don't think about how many guys there are. They may have guns, different neighborhood. I, I just anger just drives me, you know, right. and, just, and, and, uh, I walk up to these guys and they pull out straps and start shooting. And as tough as I thought I was, I ended up running back towards the cars cause I don't want to get shot. And, um, that girl got shot right in the head.
0: Yeah, the girl, the girl got shot in the head? Yeah,
1: right in the temple.
0: Because she had switched seats and now she's sitting in the mm-hmm. shotgun and they shot her. Yeah. And, and, I, lied.
1: So, and I lied uh, because she knew my girl at the time. And if I would have told her the truth, then she wouldn't have came. So that really hurt me later I, as I started to become more conscious, you know, because I pushed it down for
0: a long time. Okay, so when you say it hurt you later, you mean like that night and the next day? In knowing that she she got shot, did you did you feel any way of source? Like were you sad about this?
1: Yeah, but I pushed it down. You know, I don't Where'd, like to feel things, so I pushed so it. What down were you with pushing alcohol.
0: it down Like alcohol, alcohol and pills. Yeah. Pills. What kind of pills did you used to use? Uh, I did a lot of. I used it back in the day a lot of Vicodin
1: and um, Norkels. Okay, I mean, so. I would I would use that to drink, and then i caught in a little bit. Yeah.
0: So when that happened, how old were you? I was in my 20s. Okay. So, early 20s. And how old were you when you got sober? Uh,
1: 32.
0: Okay. So, between that time and your 30s, what happened? Did you, were you just continually gangbanging and working and, and uh, drinking and using? Was that just a way of life up until your 30s? It was
1: just a way of life until I lost everything. You know, uh, there's a saying in Alcoholics Anonymous alcohol gave me wings that fly but my alcoholism took away the sky. And that's exactly mm. what happened.
0: Okay, so then you said until I lost everything. What happened? You lost everything like you were homeless?
1: Yeah, I became homeless. Um, How did that happen? Living out of a bag. Um, it just, everything just fell to pieces. I don't know.
0: Why, were you I'm fucked just, up? Like you could not yeah, just never I,
1: I, I couldn't function. I was shaking. I remember uh, my last days I was, my buddy was in a rehab and he reached out to his brother and he t- let me stay in his apartment for the last couple of months until he got out. But I, I was sitting in that apartment and I, I had to drink. I had to get loaded. I had to. I needed to relieve me from the bondage of self, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I would play that song, Song Cry by Jay-Z over and over and just be sad and hurt and just drink because I lost everything that gave me a sense of self, you know, Worth- everything that was worthwhile in my life, everything that was important, I, I sh- it was stripped away. And when I say from my alcoholism, from my own, from my own making, you know, I can't blame it on a disease cause it's not a disease.
0: I like that you bring that up. Cause we've talked about that extensively. We'll get into that in a second, but so you said you were staying at, at, at the dude's house. Now, did that end? Like did he say you got to go or is that where you ended up deciding to change your life?
1: Yeah. My last night drinking, it was November 13th in 2009 and, um, you know, a couple of days before that, I put a thirty-eight to my head, and I couldn't do it because I see my daughter's eyes, right? But um, you know, I, I promised I was going to go back to my neighborhood. I was going to stay, you know, in Torrance and drink, where people really don't know me, you know, and I don't have to watch my back as much, you know. And um, but uh, you know, I I, I get drunk, and once I drink, I I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I'm often running like Forrest Gump. I and um, uh, but I um. I get back to my neighborhood and there's a party and start talking crap. I always talk about when I'm drunk. I think I'm Bruce Lee, Boy George, and, and Tupac all put together. And I'm just definitely messing around with boy, boy George. No, but, uh, um, you know, I have a big mouth like Tupac and, and I think I'm Bruce Lee and, and I'm willing to fight anybody. And um, even if I get my butt whipped, but I don't even think about that, you know, because I'm driven by fear. I'm just scared, really. But I pretend I'm tough. And I've been in a lot of fights, you know, and a lot of, of violence. But um, that night, someone got shot and it wasn't me, you know. Um, but I woke up and I was just tired. And I said, if there's an F in God, help me or take me because I can't do this anymore.
0: Okay, so you woke up where? I was. A, I
1: woke up in my buddy's uh, apartment and he let me stay on until he got out of his rehab. Because okay. he found out, found out I was homeless.
0: So you weren't? uh, Did you? You didn't go through a traditional detox or the Beacon House or sober living or treatment or anything like that, right?
1: No, thank God.
0: Okay, (laughs) stop. So, but you you did go. I mean, if you were on pills and stuff, did you detox on your own? Like, did you go through the pain of?
1: Yeah, I did. Uh, I did. I was in a lot of pain. Just cold turkey. Had the shakes. Yeah, it was hard. So
0: you. And alcohol, too, like mm-hmm. that's that's deadly, man. Yeah. To be detox like w- would not be I didn't detoxed. know anything
1: I, I I didn't know anything before because I never even heard of Alcoholics Anonymous, I never heard of recovery, any of that stuff. it was all it was all new to me, so okay. I, it, I I so yeah, like it, nowadays everyone knows about going taking someone to a recovery. I never had any friends, they were all tweakers and, and uh, drug addicts and alcoholics, and mm-hmm. I never even heard of them going to rehabs except prison. <laughs>
0: It's so it's interesting because I I relate to, you know, the fact that you you grew up in a gang life, you know, a gangster mentality is like um, we're the best. Our neighborhood tops your neighborhood. You can't you can't fade us like don't fuck with us. And then to be like to have that that grandiose, like egoic upbringing where where you just think you're the shit like you you don't mess with us. Right. And to be able to see the transition through a lifestyle that you think is going to serve you well. And seeing other people have gone off to like the military and they've changed their lives, or they're questioning you, like, really, dude? Like, you're still doing this shit? But to the point where you become homeless and lose everything, and you're just broken, like, just totally broken, like, like you don't know what the fuck else to do. So, and to to not even go through like, I mean, I know in that area down there, there's the Beacon House, and there's certain, uh, you know, places that that are the end of the road, like the last house on the block. But what what then inspired you or made you? from all of your brokenness, decide to turn it around? Like what, what was your drive? Like what happened there?
1: Well, to rewind it real, really quick. The reason why I said thank God that I didn't go to those places is because maybe I wouldn't have got it. You know, I think the way I found it and I can't speak for everyone, just for me is exactly the way I needed to find it at the time where I can hear the message and do the deal, right? I don't know if someone, you know, but um, I don't know. I think I was just in a lot of pain, you know, those three jewels of Alcoholics Anonymous um, became present and I grabbed them and utilized them, which is willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness, which was caused through a lot of pain and suffering.
0: Right. So, okay. So then you got sober. You, you, was it, obviously it was just through a 12 step process, like a 12 step community, correct?
1: Yeah. I came out, I found some structured groups and I found some friends that I knew from the streets that were really doing the deal. They weren't just cheerleaders. But they were actually active members of the fellowship. Okay, and, so these
0: and, were ex ex gangsters that got sober.
1: Yeah, my friend Javier was one. and He was an older cat. He's like your age, and, and uh, um, he uh, you're older. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but um, now he was just an active uh, gang banger and respected for in the streets for all the wrong reasons, right? or all the right reasons in that way of thinking, you know, he was a gunner. He, he didn't mess around. You don't want to look at him too long, you know, and he's laughing and giggling and eating cookies at a AA meeting. And my my thinking at the time was, did he snitch on somebody?
0: He ah, he's a
1: punk, you know. Like a sellout. Like, what, yeah, how are, you yeah.
0: what are you straight edge now after you're, after you're supposed to represent the hood? But, of course, that's that same egoic conditioned thinking Thank you, yeah. Now, now, this is what I wanted to ask you. You told me earlier that you had a pretty much an, an elementary school uh, education, right? Like you never really advanced past that. So is it fair to say that you were illiterate, like you didn't know how to read?
1: Yeah, I had a hard time reading and anything I could read, I couldn't comprehend.
0: All right. So you had a hard time reading. You could comprehend. What do you, you mean? Like, well, what were you trying to read? Were you in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous? Is that what somebody was trying to, to help take you through?
1: Oh yeah, that's the first book I've ever read, cover that's to cover. That's the first book. So it's you... actually, the
0: only book I've ever read, cover to cover. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> that's bullshit. You read a lot of books. Since then. Yeah, I but never I never read
1: them. read them cover to cover.
0: Okay, but but here's the thing that gets me: like you gotta you gotta admit, like a, a that the literature in Alcoholics Anonymous is like some some folklore, like some parts of that's like some folklore, like Shakespearean style of writings, and then and then on top of that, like during that time, like in the early '30s, like you had these. You know, the way that Bill and others wrote it is like they use words that we don't even fucking use anymore, like (laughs) cocksureness or whoopee parties and shit like that. And so here you are, an an illiterate man, that your first book that you learn is is fucking that book of all (laughs) books. And and, but but what I really like is the fact that you didn't just read it, but you got the essence of it very early on, because I met you when you had like four years of sobriety and uh, three. It was three years, of surprise. Yeah. and and the, and, and you weren't uh, to to me, you weren't robotic. Like you, when you talked recovery, what I really liked about you is that you would incorporate uh, much of your upbringing or the things that influenced you, like anything from Tupac to the new newfound stuff that you've been reading, like Eckhart Tolle, and you would like kind of just incorporate all of that stuff together into your story and base it around a lot of the twelve step lingo. Let alone it was your your style of talking. That was the first thing that attracted me to you because I was like, Who the fuck is this gangster with the tattoos <laughs> on his neck that's wearing a three piece suit that's coming like what's he gotta tell us here today? Right? Like he he looks like he's about to still go out and, and gangbang. So I judged you, right? But almost immediately once I heard you start to talk, I was like, Oh but well, we gotta be friends. Like this guy's <laughs> this guy's dope as fuck. So so when you uh when you got into that book obviously you went through the through the process of the steps and that that what did that do for you well you know I, uh, thank
1: god for like you know people in the in the fellowship because they really helped me understand what stuff meant because i didn't understand what it meant right but then uh, when they would explain stuff to me i i didn't get caught up in the wording so much but i heard the principle behind it all right so it's not so much the wording but the principles behind it. And I was able to, I don't know, I was just able to, to see that and, and uh, utilize those principles and which made started to make sense for me.
0: Okay. So I got, I'm going to actually ask the question in a second because uh, my friend Michael just asked, uh, here, I'll just put it on the screen so you can see it. You guys like Sadhguru and, and we'll get into that because I know you already know who that is because you, you've, uh, so after the big book, you you started to now that you learned how to read, you started to read a lot of other stuff. I know that you you love reading, like you 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 study many schools of thought, a lot of spirituality. But I think something really special happened for you that you you and I went to the meditation gardens uh, where that Yogananda had started up in uh, L.A. It was in the Palisades, and while we were there, like we had these deep conversations because I think you and I were vibing right away. Because you knew I, I love Rumi, I love mysticism, I love mystics, and you had already like studied extensively many different schools of thought, many mystics, many philosophers. And, and I want to know, didn't you say like something just came to you, like yeah. you, like you had almost seen it in a dream? Can you, can you expand on that, please?
1: I don't really talk about this much, um, <laughs> yeah. especially in the rooms, but um, since you brought it up. Yeah, Sadhguru and, and Shri Shri is another one. Um, yeah, there's some great mystics. I, I love those guys. Um, but yeah, it's like the mystics started to come to me from like my first year of sobriety. Everything just started to come. Yogananda was one who started to speak to me in spirit um, and guide me. He was a guide for me. Um, I never knew who this guy was. He'd come in dreams his face. Um, people I started to hear his name and I didn't put two and two together at first and everywhere I'd go I'd hear Yogananda and I started to follow get into his teachings and find out who this guy is and um, yeah so I had a lot of guidance with Yogananda
0: so it was kind of like a six degrees of separation for a person that's deceased but he's really not deceased because <laughs> his spirit was still alive but I think we've also talked about the fact that even Yogananda and it's not like all humanity all humans don't have an ego even Yogananda had a bit of an ego but he did start a Uh, tremendously powerful movement. I mean, he's got three different centers or he started three different centers in Southern California.
1: Yeah, um, well, the ego is the human experience, right? We won't have the human experience without it. Um, But also there's no such thing as death. I think that's an illusion. Um, That's an illusion. How can you kill God if God is within us and is our true essence, right? Spirit.
0: And did you... Did you ever actually start believing in God or higher power or you choose not to call it God? Was that through the, the process of recovery or through your readings or do you even believe?
1: Um, well, I started to believe in a in power, right? And uh, so are the source of life, the all, right? As Toast would call it. But um, yeah, God has kind of been a misused word and it becomes like a mental image for a lot of people because it's been conditioned a certain way. But it's really the self-realization that nanda taught, that in order to experience your oneness with, with, with the all. You know, we're all connected.
0: So is it safe to say, at least based off of your belief system, that God is within us? God is, we are God?
1: We are God. Um, I, there's a saying, um, if you don't become the water, you'll always be seasick. And then the Buddhist Thich Nakan always says, enlightenment for the wave is a realization. You are water, not the wave. Or Jesus said, I am my father, are one, which is just wording that he used in his culture, right? Father.
0: Mm-hmm. And with, At no, the time. Uh, with no mud, you can't have a lotus.
1: Yeah, no mud, no lotus. Um so um, all that stuff helped me wake up to my true essence the the Gnostic Christians talked about forgetfulness is the root of ignorance and I forgot who I was because trauma is a loss of self you know the origin of the word trauma in Greek is a wound and I was hurt you know behind all addiction is pain and hurt Mm -hmm. you know trauma but for most cases for for all cases there's some pain underneath it you know
0: so if trauma is the loss of self does that mean do you believe that Oh, well, obviously, much of humanity has experienced some kind of trauma in their life. Oh, yeah. Some is sure. sexual trauma. Some is uh, verbal, Perce- physical trauma. Perceived trauma. Perceived trauma. Uh, do you believe that all humanity can work through their trauma? If if they've lost yeah. themselves, they can find themselves, correct?
1: Yeah. Because who we really are is so powerful. It's beyond the mind. Just like God is beyond the mind. I don't know if that makes sense. But, um, like, I've had some deep spiritual experiences that I realized that, uh, and it's all beho- be beyond the mental, the conditioned thinking. It's beyond that. It's it's pure consciousness.
0: Okay. So then with that mental conditioned thinking, which we often talk about, right? We often talk about this. You, um, This is a learned behavior because people are just raised a certain way, so they think a certain way, and that's just what they believe, correct? Well, that's
1: why they say uh, – Alcoholism or addiction runs in my family. Mm. Like, is it your genes or is it your 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 um, beliefs? You know, epigenetics will tell us it's our beliefs. The biology of belief. You know, um, um, what's it called? Came out with um, Bruce Lipton, one of my favorite uh, doctors, Doctor Bruce Lipton, in 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 mystics because he is a mystic. He's a spiritual mm-hmm. scientist. I call him,
0: mm-hmm. and uh, you
1: know, he came up with a, a, a beautiful uh, book called The Biology of Belief. And he talks about how alcohol, I mean, addiction in a disease, you know, and a lot of these great doctors, Dr. Joe Dispenza, Gabor Mate, who's like our Silkworth of today. But I think that's actually an understatement And no disrespect to Silkworth. But uh, gabori they all say it's not a disease.
0: Okay. So let's take that back to, to Alcoholics Anonymous. This is an 80-some-odd-year-old program. I mean, it was based off of a book that Bill wrote when he was, what, three years sober, I believe?
1: yes and he was very spiritually immature at the time and i'm not disrespecting bill because he would agree with me bill had so much to grow but what he was dope at and what i really respect is he put those universal principles that you'll find in uh, islam or christianity or buddhism or hinduism Mm -hmm. or or even the emerald tablets from toth the egyptian god the great Mm -hmm. atlantean and and, uh, all these he put those together and we to, taught us how to utilize them uh, science and uh, spirituality or are, are, are have to go together you mm-hmm. know they're not separate because science can now break down in, in depth how our mind and body heal itself if when we live on a spiritual basis so science without spirituality is incomplete and uh, spirituality without, without science is ignorance we've got to learn put them together
0: okay so let's go a little bit deeper now. This is something that I've been wanting to talk to you about on this podcast for quite some time because we have a lot of conversations and and we're allowed to have these conversations I think due to the fact that we're free thinkers and free spirits and we've also uh, studied the the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. Let me tell you, like when I first got sober, I sat in my my rehab's uh counselor's office he was this little Persian guy, my little Persian Yodosia, and on the wall, he had a picture of these two old guys. I'm like, who's the old guys? Who's the old white guys, right? He said, well, that's Bill and Bob. These are the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm like, so why do you have them on the wall? And he goes, because they saved my life. I'm like, how'd they save your life? What are you talking about? Like, I thought you were an NA guy. He goes, well, you don't understand. Like, they started AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and then it, it, you know, other other things branched out, other different movements, other different groups, other twelve-step groups like Narcotics Anonymous came from it. Cocaine Anonymous, uh, heroin Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, all these Anonymous, Sex Anonymous. So I was like, so why? I mean, why on their on your wall though? Because because they mean a lot to me because they were good people. They they basically saved a lot of lives. They started something that saved a lot of lives. So in in the time that I've known you, I know that that uh, you had moved to Ohio. A few years ago, and it was kind of alarming to me because I thought, why would you like want to leave Los Angeles and go <laughs> live in like a, a cold, dreary state like Ohio? Not that I would even know because I'd never been to Ohio. I just assumed. Right. And, and then when you had moved there, I actually came out and visited you and we went. You took me and showed me pretty much the history of AA come to life. Like we went to Dr. Bob's house. And for those that don't know, obviously, it wasn't just Bill Wilson. It was Dr. Bob Smith, too, that was a proctologist, right? And Bill was a stockbroker, but Bill wasn't doing too good financially. This is during the Great Depression and all that stuff. He was drinking, and then he got sober, and then he he met Dr. Bob. He took me to the Mayflower Hotel where uh, Bill was actually c- contemplating drinking again, and he saw the people at the bar. But instead, he called Henrietta Sieberling, and he called somebody else to put him in touch with Henrietta Sieberling, who who at the time had a house, and she provided the space to have Bob and Bill come and meet together in a room, which you and I went and sat in. We also went to the hospital where Sister Ignatia was working with the alcoholics in the alcohol ward, and she would give out the medallions. And we, you know, you took me all over. We went to the actual place where where Doctor Bob was, where uh, there was a portrait of him, and I think. Uh, Ebby Thatcher's um, Bible was actually still there. So, this is during this time when these two guys collaborated. Bill Dotson, huh? Bill, Bill Dotson? Bible. Okay, yeah. yeah. When these two guys collaborated and met, um, one of them had a very Christian background, the other one studied from the Oxford group and, and or actually was turned on to, to the Oxford group's, uh, um, uh, the steps that they provided, which were just six steps, but he then expanded on it, which would be, uh, Bill Wilson. But. Was the egoic thinking, do you think like taking form even during that time in alcoholics anonymous, or were these guys when they were trying to put it all together? Cause we went into Dr. Bob's house and we saw, um, we saw the books that they were using during that time to put together the big book. Like, uh, varieties of religious experiences by William James or or Carl Carl Young. They were they were working with Carl Young to be able to get uh, you know cert- he was a psychiatrist, correct? Yes. And they were they were basically coming they were trying to make this thing be appealing to all alcoholics, not just a limited amount, correct?
1: I think in the very beginning uh it was a certain group, you know. Yeah. I mean to be honest, women were considered sluts if they yeah. came into the rooms. Um, so I it was really the, open. Didn't
0: Dr. Bob not want women in Alcoholics Anonymous in the beginning?
1: I think they all did. That was just the collective thinking at the time. But thank God that um they were able to think greater than their environment. Um Bill Wilson and Bob eventually. I mean, because if it was up to the Akron people, they uh, they didn't want that big book to come out because they already found a solution. They were happy with the Oxford Group in many ways, you know.
0: Okay. Um. So with that said. Let's talk about Bill and Bob's trauma. Did our, did the founders of the of the of the 12 step community of of AA did to your knowledge from your studies or what you've learned uh did they have trauma?
1: Yeah, of course. Um well, if you look at, you know, Bill says we realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us, right? So, um and it doesn't talk about that in the big book. But um yeah. Bill Wilson at a young age, you know, um, lost his childhood sweetheart that he thought he was going to marry and he was in love with principal comes up to him and says that uh, she died, you know, and, uh, you know, he had abandonment issues. His, you know, his mom sat down with him and his sister and said, uh, your father left us, you know, and then next, you know, she leaves out to college, you know, um, and becomes one of the first women to graduate from Harvard, I believe, you know, but, um, and then he felt abandoned. He, he didn't felt lovable, right? I talked to you I told you earlier, he felt the least of God's creatures. So he had to be the first at everything, you know. And uh but he um so he experienced some traumas and he experienced some war and so on. We don't know what else he experienced. Well I don't, you know. Yeah. But um and then you look at Dr. Bob and he looks like he comes from a perfect home. But then his daughter writes in the Dr. Bob in the good old timers, uh, Sue, and she says, um, you know, her mother blamed um his mother for, for his rough upbringing, for his alcoholism, the, the reason why he became an alcoholic. So there's some perceived trauma there. There's developmental trauma through Dr. Bob and there's obvious trauma through Bill Wilson. You know, trauma is trauma and what it does is it gives you the loss of self. You, that equilibrium is thrown out of whack. You, you start to live in that threatened homeostasis state, right? Where unrest am is irritable and discontent, you know, and then and, and trauma gets you trapped in the past. So all my responses are not in the present moment. It's a response from the past.
0: So, and obviously, you know, I think that uh, when you say that about Bill having the abandonment abandonment issues, even when he was, you know, he was drinking in excess, not just during a time of loss, for example, financial loss, but also in celebratory senses so drinking was just a way of life he was numbing uh to fe- to not feel or to feel good to feel inebriated like because he he loved the effect that was produced by alcohol but obviously when i talk about the abandonment issues probably carried on into his marriage because he didn't want lois to leave him and of course she was a bit of a codependent right lois was his wife and she she yeah. would stick by his side and and she knew him she knew him better than when she could take care of him than when he got well then she didn't know how to deal with that which in turn <laughs> made her have to create something new, and that would be Al-Anon, which saves Mm -hmm. a lot of people's lives, a lot of families, because it shows them how to deal with uh, their newfound, sober, loved one. Right? Yeah. Um, Okay, so... Well... Why the philosophies? When you say the philosophies of recovery... uh, Example... Okay, let me ask this question. You got sober in a very, you got sober in a group of people that uh, were carrying the original message, uh, and they also. I don't. I want to say this in a respectful way. They also had a, um, they had a movement or have a movement still to this day where when people go there, they're asked to dress a certain way, and I noticed that when they also share they share in a general way but they do also share their story in a way to where it sounds very similar right it sounds very similar i think um uh, there's some rigidity and some would see it as dogmatic even in other uh and other 12 step movements not just in that area but nationally uh and i know even in, in, internationally there are people that follow that school of thought that style of sharing that style of being um uh, where where there's uh they're really big on the singleness of purpose and you know there's a lot of old timers that that do not want to hear talk, drug talk in in aa meetings um so i i think that when when people are overly rigid and they they are dogmatic they kind of scare people away from wanting to really be part of that fellowship. Is that correct? Are they creating new trauma?
1: Yes, yes, and yes. I I believe, um, you know, once it becomes rigid and and, uh, strict, uh, it becomes a religion. And unfortunately, it has become a religion. Just like that self-realization fellowship that Yogananda started has become a religion. That's kind of the human nature uh, with movements, Christianity it's a religion right you right. it, it become really dogmatic and egoic becomes it becomes a part of your egoic identity which it, it's, it's supposed to be a spiritual movement if there was a spiritual movement we wouldn't have to need to protect anything you know we just got to live in truth and be authentic um but uh as far as um you know when it's uh when we're carrying a message through a generalized construct it, it's very limited to how it's going to help and yes it's helped a lot of people but how much more can it help if we become less rigid and we start to let go of some customs and do like a, a inventory within a, collectively, not just individually? And what can we do? Because uh, alcoholism is an addiction, period. There's no – it's not it's separate from addicts. It's just a different substance. And the big books. Right. pretty you might, If you're
0: drinking daily, if you're a daily drinker or an hourly drinker or a minute-by-minute drinker, you're addicted to alcohol. Yeah. So and, what, so and, it's an and addiction, addiction.
1: – Addiction is a response to trauma or pain or hurt, right? It's it, so it's a normal human response to that suffering, that pain. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so we use that stuff, and then and then what happens is we become addicted to uh, what it does for us. You know, because trauma is not what happened to you; it's what happened within you, mm-hmm. and, and it, it we're wounded inside, which creates what Bill calls a spiritual malady, mm-hmm. right? But I'm never really a defective character. I just I'm suffering from some habits and and thought patterns that are are not really working anymore. They're throwing me off alignment from my true self, and and harmony with the with the all right. So um, I, I think uh, that willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness must continue for us, including with the old timers, you know, uh, and be more open to because when the, it was written the book, it was written to a specific society at a certain right. time, right. you know it should be a reflection of society and we're not in that society anymore. You
0: know, when, so. W- so 17 years after the big book was written, I think it was about that time when Bill then wrote the 12 and 12 and he, he broke down the steps in a whole other, so. something like that. And, yeah. and, and at that time, it's my understanding, perhaps, maybe I'm wrong that Bill was going through some depression. His, his, he had a a different, he was more advanced in his thought process do you think when he was writing the 12 and 12, he was trying to explain the steps uh, in a more psychological way and and kind of sprinkling spirituality within it? I mean, uh, what do you think about that?
1: Well, he had, um, he you know, what made him irk a little bit was, and he talks about this in some of his talks. I know there's one in Texas. He he gave a talk and I forgot what year it is, but he talks about um, when they talk about the AA Bible. He says, we early AAs were far from. Biblical right and it kind of kind of bothered him. So he wanted to I, I read up on some stuff and says where he wanted to write that 12 and 12 so we don't have so stuck in